Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Christianity Today and Kairos Partnerships. I'm your co-host, J.R. Briggs, and my friend and co-host, Doug Moister, is off today. It's just me in the podcast interview chair, and we're having a conversation today with my new friend, Chris Martin. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. He's the author of the brand new book uh, titled Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media, which just came out earlier this spring. Chris is the content marketing editor at Moody Publishers, and he's a social media marketing and communications consultant. In my mind, he's a social media guru. He's an expert. He's led social media strategy for Lifeway Christian Services, as well as advising some of the foremost Christian leaders and authors on digital content strategy and helped run their platforms. He writes regularly at termsofservice.social, a newsletter that I subscribe to, and I highly recommend that you do as well. Chris lives outside of Nashville with his wife, Susie, and their daughter, Magnolia, and their dog, Rizzo. Now, he's a huge Chicago Cubs fan, so if you're a baseball fan, you may realize that he's named his dog after the great Anthony Rizzo, formerly of the Chicago Cubs. Enjoy this conversation with Chris Martin. Well, Chris, it's great to see you, man. Thanks for jumping on the podcast here with us here this morning. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Jared. It's good to be here and uh, glad to be hanging out and talking with you today. Yeah, well, I know uh, you and I were recently introduced uh, through a mutual friend and uh, you and I connected and I had some questions about social media and man, was, was our mutual friend right in terms of your knowledge of the topic. And what I love, Chris, is your understanding of social media and how that works. And yet at the theologically grounded at the same time and bringing those together. And then as we talk, learn about your new book that recently came out called Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. First of all, congratulations on your first book. I know that's a lot of work. And uh, secondly, tell us a little bit about the book and what prompted the writing of it in the first place. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you, Jerry. Yeah, I was I'm glad that our friend Will connected us and uh, it yeah. was fun to talk strategy. I love talking shop and talking social media strategy. I've lived in that world forever. And and it's really fun to just try to use, I think, the ways the Lord has gifted me to try to, you know, advance the gospel and the good news on the internet. And I think it's it's a fun, it's a fun sort of still new frontier in which we can be doing that. Um, so yeah, in terms of service, um, you know, I, like I just kind of mentioned, I've been working in social media and digital content strategy for a long time, really just trying to help a lot of Christian leaders or authors communicate with their audiences or people who are interested in what they have to say on the internet. And so because I've spent a lot of my career doing that, I got to about 27, I graduated from college in 2013 um, and started working uh, at Lifeway Christian Resources for the first seven years of my career from about 2013 to 2020. And it was around 2017, 2018 that I was really like knee deep in social media strategy and, and really, you know, like studying the Facebook algorithm and, and like really just trying to get to the bottom of a lot of what makes social media tick right? Um, like, like studying the technology at the root and, and really learning a lot because I have two Bible degrees. I'm a kind of a writer by nature. I'm not like a math guy. I've always loved tech and technology, but I've never really loved like anything beyond basic mathematics. And so I was really just starting to dig into a lot of the nuts and bolts uh, that make up 
how these social media platforms work. And as I did so, I started to get a little bit just kind of concerned as to how these things work and how they acquire our attention and keep our attention. Around that same time, a friend turned me on to uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is a book written in 1985 and never mentions the internet, obviously, given when it was published, but it could not be more relevant to the time in which we live today. In fact, I would say it's more relevant today than it was in 1985, and it was quite relevant in 1985. Um, It talks a lot about the telegraph and the television and nothing about Twitter, but I've often joked that if you read the entire chapter on the telegraph, you could just substitute the word Twitter for telegraph and it would totally oh. port over to the modern day. So I was reading Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death and I was just getting all kinds of thoughts for, wow, wow, that applies to today, that applies to today and started connecting it to social media and then kind of realized that there, weren't, there aren't a lot of people who are writing about social media today like Postman wrote about television and kind of entertainment culture saturating everything in the 80s and early 90s from like a Christian worldview. Not, we don't have to like baptize everything we do. We can, like I learn from non-Christian writers all the time. Some of my favorite writers are writing for Random House and the New York Times and all of that. But I do know that there are unique Christian applications to things like this and for churches or for pastors. And so I was like, well, what if, what if I tried to write as though I was Neil Postman living in the 21st century from a Christian mm. worldview? I think we mm. could benefit from a voice like that. And I didn't really see much of that going on. And it was obviously a big interest of mine. So I just said, well, I'm going to start translating amusing ourselves to death to the 21st century and from a Christian worldview. And that's kind of where it got started. And I started writing a newsletter and and writing in some other outlets a bit. And that led to me wanting to do a full length book. And so that's how it came about. I started writing it in June of 2020, right after my daughter was born. I do not, I mean, you know, there are pluses and minuses to writing a book when you have a newborn. But um, but it was also during the beginning of this global pandemic that we're still enduring. So I did have maybe a little bit more free time than than someone in the average kind of time and season. So, yeah, so that's how it all got started. And and uh, really, the whole point to get to the the let me say the thesis briefly. Sure. Is like I, I I wrote the book because. Not because I think social media is evil and we may get to that, but because mm-hmm. I think we we often use social media more passively than we should and less intentionally than we should. Hmm. And I think we ought to be asking more critical questions of these platforms that we so freely welcome into our lives than we have. Um, I think we should ask hard questions of what is this doing to me? Why am I giving up this personal information? Why, you know, we just, you know, we just adopt features. We adopt apps without really asking is this worth it? Postman was famous for asking a question of all new technology. What is the problem to which this new technology is a solution? And I think we should be asking that question of every social media platform we use. What is the problem to which Facebook is a solution? What is the problem to which Instagram is a solution? Fill in whatever you want. And I just want us to be more thoughtful, not abandon everything, but just to be more thoughtful. So that's really what the the goal of the book is. I'm so glad you mentioned Postman, and you and I share the same alma mater, Taylor University, and in my Foundations of Christian Thought, the required text was Amusing Ourselves to Death by Postman, and it is such a prescient book in that it is just more relevant today than when it was written, uh, which there are very few books that are prescient like that, and I'm so grateful that you are jumping on that and wanting to be that for for a new generation. I'm going to read something um, in in your introduction. I know it's kind of weird as an author to like have someone else read your words back to you, but I want to just read these for our our listeners 
and many of our pastors here, and then let you respond to that and un- uncork that a little bit as it relates specifically to pastors. You said, the, the social internet is brilliant and obscene. It sharpens the mind and dulls it. It brings nations together and tears them apart. It perpetuates, reveals, and attempts to repair injustice. It is an untamed beast upon which we can only hope to ride, but never quite tame. It's hard to see it now, but the social internet is not just the latest iteration of the printing press or the television. The pervasiveness and invasiveness of the social internet can be likened to an alien invasion. You can't stop it. You must learn to live alongside it, whether you like it or not. You may delete your Facebook account, but a friend will ask if you have one. You can stay off Twitter, but you will hear about what happened there on the evening news. We may be able to log off the social internet, delete it, or delete our accounts, and never participate, but we can never escape its influence. What is it doing to us? I mean, that is a monster two paragraphs there, Chris. <laughs> Unpack that a little bit, because I think there are some pastors on here that might say, oh, we're just supposed to delete our accounts and tell our people to do the same. But you also talked about, you know, you, you asked the question from Postman, and in your book, you say, what is the point? So how do we as pastors actually help our people think very intentionally, wisely, and purposefully about social media from our ministry position? Man. Uh, it's a great question because it's an incredibly difficult one to answer. Um, how, how should pastors help people think about social media? I mean, I think, you know, it, this might sound trite or even cliche, but we're, t- we're to prayerfully, be, prayerfully do all things and pursue godliness in all things. Um, and so I, I think very basically, you know, a, a pastoral admission and, uh, admonition and understanding that social media is to be used for the building up of others, for the loving of others, um, for the building up of ourselves, for pursuit of Christ, Christ likeness within ourselves, and not um, as a means of of escaping our Christian faith or or um, abandoning our Christian faith or something like that. I, I think from man, this this question, I, I don't even know. I'm I'm so grateful um, for pastors and the work that they do. And having once thought I was going to be one myself, I can't imagine dealing with social media as a pastor. I've mm-hmm. talked to a handful of pastors, especially as I'm writing a, ne- a next book following this one that's specifically for pastors. And um, I think the way pastors should lead people to handle social media is encourage them to engage with it intentionally and not passively. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this mm-hmm. briefly, and as I was explaining the thesis sort of of the book, um, but I think, you know, I've talked to some pastors who encourage their people to just log off. And, and I get that. And I get, I, like, I think that's an admirable uh, thing for a pastor to say. And I think that's probably wise for a lot of people. But I think it's maybe a bit unrealistic. And I don't want pastors to set themselves up for failure when a lot of their people don't log off, right? Um, and so I think I, I opened the book with an illustration from David Foster Wallace. Um, I don't know that he's the one who originally came up with it, but he's the one who made it famous in his commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, I believe. And he says this fish story, there's an older fish and two younger fish, older fish swims by the younger fish say, or the older fish says to the younger fish, hey, boys, how's the water? Younger fish just kind of respond in kind and keep going. And one turns to the other and says, what the heck is water? And they, you know, they, the younger fish just don't even realize they're swimming in water. And I think for us today, 
social media is the water in which we swim. And like fish, we cannot exist or live outside of it. Um, I talk to my 88-year-old grandmother every Sunday while, we were make, while I'm making dinner. I usually make dinner on Sundays. I will throughout the week as well. But every Sunday, basically, I'm making dinner. And I'll call her while I'm making dinner. And she's never used the internet in her life. She's 88 has had a dumb phone until just a year ago and, and begrudgingly upgraded to an iPhone that she doesn't use any of the internet features on. Um, <laughs> and, and she's never used the internet. But however, when we talk every Sunday, she regularly brings up things that her friends see on Facebook and tell her about um, and asks me about them. I think one time she even kind of got duped secondhand by a piece of fake news. Like her friend got duped by a piece of fake news on Facebook and then told her about it. And it had her all fired up. And she asked me how she could write to Facebook. <laughs> and I was like, Grandma, I don't, I don't think you can write to Facebook, like a physical letter to Facebook. Um, but all of that's to say, like, she, she's never used the internet, let alone Facebook. And yet she's still being influenced by it. And she watches the mm -hmm. evening news and sees things about politicians, tweets or whatever else. And so I think as a pastor, I, I'm always hesitant to like tell a pastor what to do because I recognize how hard the job of a pastor is. And I'm not one. And I think fewer pastors, fewer people probably need to be telling pastors what to do. However, knowing what I know about social media, I would encourage pastors to encourage their church members and those who congregate with them whenever they get together to have a measured, careful, intentional relationship with social media, not a passive one that just fills the gaps of time. Uh -huh. uh, because that's the, that's the way, you know, that's the way many of us use it is just like, we're waiting at the at the barbershop or we're waiting for our plane or whatever else. And I think if we set some intentional boundaries, maybe perhaps have some accountability in place for how we use it, how much we use it, and just treat it like the powerful, powerful force that it is, rather than treat it like a child's toy. Mm -hmm. um, I think as in as much as pastors can do that, but of course, pastors have to do that themselves as well, which I think is is difficult. Yeah, I mean, I remember, uh, when my sons were coming of age and having the talk with them. <laughs> and as we had the talk, I, I started by saying uh, to each son in different, different times, so is fire good or bad? And they're like, good, bad. Well, it depends. <laughs> and I said, and that's exactly, and when we talked about sex, I said the same thing. Like fire yep. in a fireplace is terrific, heat and light and atmosphere. And when it rolls off and rolls on the carpet and burns down the house, it's terrible. So I said, in the right context, it depends if fire is good or bad. And I, right. And so we talked about sex that way. And would you, would you say that social media is the same way? It's almost like fire in the fireplace versus fire on the, on the carpet. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think uh, another, um, and Christians have different perspectives on alcohol, but I've often likened mm -hmm. it to alcohol. Mm -hmm. Some people can, let, let's say for, for, for the sake of argument that scripture does not totally ban alcohol. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, some people can have a healthy very like limited, measured relationship with alcohol. They can have a glass of wine at dinner. They can have a beer when they're at a baseball game, you know, something like that. Some folks, when they engage alcohol, whether it's because of biology or because of social settings, upbringing, whatever else, they, they cannot engage it at all or they just go hog wild and they go unhinged and they, they can't manage their relationship with it in a healthy way. Um, I think the same can be true of social media that we can have a measured, healthy relationship with social media. But some of us, because of one factor or another, perhaps it's an addictive personality uh, you know, disorder or issue, or perhaps it's just context and how we were raised or whatever else, we can't engage social media at all without letting it run our lives. And I mm -hmm. think so, yeah, I think the fire analogy is a really, 
another really great way of thinking of that. It's a incredibly powerful force that should be respected for as power. You know, I, one of the things that I've not talked about this in any conversation I've had about the book or even in the last two months. One Good, of the things bring that it. bring you know, it. One of the things that really <laughs> bothers me, um, and I see it more with like like media outlets or more than like pastors, but but I I do see it in the church that like anything around social media is like like teeny bopper child's play like oh mm-hmm. social media oh it's just it's just on social media that doesn't really matter then or and like do you understand what people do on social media like the arab spring of 2015 14 i forget what year it was the arab spring was started on twitter like that's how you know egypt wasn't it was was toppled mm-hmm. um was through Twitter. And when when there's a coup that might happen in a country around the world, the first thing the the autocratic leaders do is shut down the internet. Like tw- social media is not child's play. And if if we're going to start to have a healthy relationship with it, we have to start treating it like the incredibly powerful force that it is. Um and so anyway, that's just a little rant that I've I thought of recently as I saw I saw somebody kind of like, "Oh, it's just like kind of downplaying the impact of social media." I'm like, "Man, that's the last thing we can we should be doing right now is down downplaying the impact because it can have tremendous impact for good or for ill and i just think we should have a careful a careful and and intentional eye about it that's all That's good. That's good. And as far as, you know, being intentional with it, which is your thesis and what what you're talking about here, you talk about the lies that we're tempted to believe when it comes to social media. And you even use the phrase social internet instead of social media, which we could even get into and and have you define those. But but as far as the social internet or social media, what are some of those lies? I mean, the first one you mentioned was like attention assigns value. Like what 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 did you mean by that? Why is that a lie? Yeah, uh, the first that's that's probably what I'm most passionate about. Honestly, we come to believe attention assigns value. You know, the social internet, and we can get into the delineation, the difference between social internet and social media. I think it's a good one, mm-hmm. um, and part of it is rooted in Postman again, despite the fact that he never really talked about it. Um, I think the the social internet and social media specifically are driven by an attention economy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great book called The Attention Merchants, which is by Tim Wu, which I read and researched for Terms of Service and talks a lot about that. Um, the attention economy is social media is an attention economy because attention is the primary currency of the social internet. Um, someone giving us their attention is worth more than them giving us a small amount of money. Um, and And on the internet, the way we feel rich, the way we start to feel wealthy is when we accrue attention. And that attention, that currency is expressed in the forms. I suppose the, the paper dollars and, and, and uh, loose change is the engagement that we accrue, right? That's the, the likes and the comments and the shares. And so that's the way we feel as though we're gaining attention and, and getting wealthy. And I think a lot of times when we use social media and engage the social internet more broadly, I think more folks want to get attention rich than maybe would admit it. We like I, one of the things that I think about most when I think about this is like I've often joked that the way you win social media is by getting on the Ellen DeGeneres show. Um, and because if you've ever watched that show, like it was on when I was still in like high school and would come home from school, my mom would have it on TV. 
um, even maybe middle school right after Oprah retired or whatever and, and gave her slot over. Um, and I just always remember, and it's still true. In fact, when I was researching for the book, I looked up her YouTube channel. And like, if you just search like viral within her YouTube channel, it's like viral nine-year-old guitarist. You know, she hasn't, it's like you, you, your video went viral, got 200,000 views. All right, let's have you on the show. And he comes, he does his little performance on the Ellen show. And it's like, wow, isn't RJ the guitarist so great? He's amazing. And, and like, we have his whole family. Oh, that we, here comes, uh, you know, some um, Santana, some amazing guitarist. And like, wow, me, that's so cool. Here's a $20,000 check from Shutterfly. I don't know why, just because. And, and it's like, you, you see these things and it's like the celebration of attention. It's like mm-hmm. going viral is the epitome, like the mountaintop of like, you know, Chewbacca mom. If you think back to like yeah. Chewbacca mom going, it was a, a mom sitting in a parking lot of a Coles who just started laughing. And then she became like world famous, got a huge book deal, got free college or whatever else. And so it's just so interesting how we've made, like we come to believe that if something gets a lot of tension, it is important. Or if something gets a lot of attention, it must be worth my attention. Or most insidiously, as the chapter title shows, if something gets more attention, it must be more valuable than that which doesn't get as much attention. And I think pastors probably feel this most, contextualizing for a lot of your listeners here, uh, with like mega churches versus small churches. Like Mm -hmm. pastors feel attention determines value when they feel like mega churches are communicated by whomever as being more important than small house churches or just smaller Christian communities in general. And so I think pastors probably have a pretty good idea of what I'm talking about. Just mm-hmm. social media has made that so much more, so much easier to communicate through the metrics of reach and engagement and the other things that social media content specialists like me track as part of their job. Um, it's okay to track those things as a measure of like, okay, hey, this blog post or this video, this sermon clip of me talking about this did better than uh, another piece of content. And that's helpful to know. And then you can say, okay, how can I better serve people or as a writer or as a speaker? But it's not helpful when we start to let that determine how we feel about ourselves and overtake the image of God in us as a means of where we find our value and our worth. You know, And I, and I, I truly think it has started to do that. And Chris, it's so subtle, but you're so right on that, that we have these spaces where we just, you know, they're even called vanity numbers, right? I mean, like vanity metrics, but yet we fall for them, which is crazy, right? Or we say, oh, that pastor, fill in the blank celebrity pastor has, you know, 400,000 views on their most recent sermon, right? And whether we like it or not, that is slicing our soul with these paper cuts each and every week being aware of them. In, in when you write about attention assigns value, the, the first lie you talk, you said we trade our privacy for attention, we pursue affirmation instead of truth, and we demonize people who dislike us, which leads to that that next big lie that you address that those who disagree with me cause me harm. Un, unpack that a little bit more. What what is that? Why why is that exacerbated in the social internet social media space? Yeah, um, there's the best book on this topic that I've read recently is. Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's The Coddling of the American Mind. Great book. Um, Great book. And, and they, they primarily, because of their experience, break down how a lot of this happens on college campuses. Um, and, and though they do talk about the internet in, in some ways, but they focus on college campuses because that's their context and their background. Um, I think it spills over onto the internet where we start to believe that um, 
a disagreement or conflict of ideas can somehow like border on a hate crime. And and I don't mean like actual criminally, but I mean like socially, you know, um, like like if we come across somebody's ideas who who are different than ours, perhaps on some sensitive topics that they're that they're victimizing us in some way. And I think um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who those guys reference a good bit in their book, authored a book called Anti-Fragile, which talks about how humans are anti-fragile and how um, I'm going to biff some of this. I'll paraphrase, but you have fragile. You have uh, hardened, or what? What's the term that he uses? I forget the term he uses. Like sturdy, if you will. Um, and then you have anti-fragile. So, like someone who, some, someone or something who's fragile breaks when you hit it hard, right? Like if you take a, if you take a hammer to a window, that's that window's fragile. You're going to break it with the hammer. Something that's sturdy is going to with is going to take that um, that force that hammer. You take a hammer to your wooden kitchen table and you hit it. It's not going to break if, unless you know you hit it a lot. You you hit it once or twice. It's not going to break, but it's going to take it. It's not going to get stronger. And it's not going to break. Something that's anti fragile needs to endure difficulty and endure some pain, if you will, in order to get stronger. So the human body, in many ways, specifically our muscles, are anti fragile. So like I went to the gym earlier today. I lifted some weights. I got on the elliptical and did some cardio for for thirty minutes. By doing that, by putting my body through that, the muscles break and tear and little tiny pieces here and there and because of that they get stronger and grow together and and then i can lift more or run faster or whatever the human mind is also anti-fragile in some to some extent now in the same way that you can't go try to squat 800 pounds your first time you're gonna tear your quads the human mind shouldn't endure terrible you know abuses or you know like terrible tragedy in the same way that your your body shouldn't endure super heavy weight in in a single period of time. However, facing small conflicts, whether interpersonal or just conflicts in your own life, over time can make you stronger and a healthier person overall. And I think the internet has made it, and social internet and our engagement with other people on social media has made it very easy for us to feel sort of afflicted and victimized by people who disagree with us. Um, and sometimes people have truly reprehensible views, sure, on whatever, like whether it's politics or religion or whatever else. But that doesn't mean that we get to demonize those people or, or that they're even personally hurting us. I think we should be willing to live in a space where somebody can hold a view, however reprehensible we think it is, and try to love them as Christ would love them and, and have a civil conversation. Uh, to the point that it seems that a conversation can be had. Sometimes you need to let conversations go. Um, but I, I've been genuinely concerned about how we conduct conversations on the internet and how polarization seeps in. We talk about that a good bit in, in the book. Um, but then also how that can lead to wanting to ruin the lives of people with whom we disagree or, or who we think have acted in a reprehensible way, which I, I just like some people people have varying views on cancel culture. Is it cancel culture or accountability culture? Well, there, there's, there are differences of views on that. I, I struggle to think that any internet mob can truly hold somebody accountable in the offline space um, for a handful of reasons. But I think regardless of how that plays out, I think it's important that we be, we be willing to engage with people who think very differently than we do, even on sensitive subjects, and not make them out to be villains as a result. Mm, mm, that's good. Well, in these last couple of minutes here, I, and I know you said that next year you have a book coming out, tentatively titled The Wolves in Their Pockets. 
um, that's specifically for pastors of what they can do. I know you just finished that manuscript. I'm not asking you to give away any secrets or anything, but let's tip into that a little bit of let's, if there are pastors listening saying, how in the world can I help the people in my congregation think through that? Uh, that's, that's sort of part B, but I want to start specific and go general. How about specifically to youth pastors? Because we have several youth pastors that listen into this podcast because they're probably on the front lines of this more than anybody else within the church in terms of from a ministerial leadership uh, role. What do you want to say to youth pastors when it comes to intentional engagement with the students that they lead? How would you want to instruct them? You get a chance to speak directly to them. What would you want to say? So I serve in the student ministry at our church. Um, and I've served in student ministry since I was a student. So back at Upland Community Church when I was a Taylor student, I served in the student ministry there and then um, have served even as a youth minister at our current church, though now I'm just a volunteer, not on staff. Um, so I feel like I'm as qualified as anything to speak to youth ministers, not, not maybe even senior pastors. Um, in my experience, when it comes to social media and students, First, let me say this. I understand the temptation to tell all students to stay off social media entirely. A, because I was a student. I was one of the first students to ever be on social media because I was of the age uh, that this stuff was first becoming a thing when I was a middle and high school student. And I understand the havoc that can come with that because I was there and I was doing it. Um, however, I also know that for a student, say a 15-year-old, you know, a, a freshman to, freshman in high school, let's let, let's let middle schoolers aside for a second because I think that's a lot more gray as to whether or not yep. you let a middle schooler on social media because um, I think there's merit to them not even having phones until they're maybe in high school, but that's a whole other conversation. So let's deal with high schoolers here. Um, there is a very real sense for high schoolers and even late middle schoolers, where if they are not on social media, they are socially ostracized. And that's a real problem and a real concern. Now, we can't do anything like you and I, pastor, whoever's listening, parent, whoever, we can't do anything about the fact that that's a reality. So let's not cry about it, right? Let's not be like, oh, it's so dumb that they have to have social media to hang out with their friends. Yeah, it is. But, you know, that ship has sailed, not a whole lot we can do. So the question is, how do we encourage students to have a healthy relationship with social media um, while maybe not making them not use it at all? Because we don't, there, there's real like personal negative side effects to being socially ostracized in that way. And I've talked with a handful of students and parents over the years about students using social media. When should they, should they at all? And I think it's up to every parent to decide. There's not a, there's not a right answer there. Um, however, I think that a, for youth ministers or parents alike, simply saying, no, you shouldn't be on social media. You don't need it. Be careful there because of the real social, like offline social implications that come with that. Like you're, you're affecting the student far beyond them not being a part of a group text message or a, or a Snapchat group. Like there are real offline effects of that. And you should be aware of that. Secondly, I think active, intentional conversation about social media activity, trends, and not just like, give me your phone, I want to see what you were saying. Because like, that just gets antagonistic so fast. And what a terrible way to try to build trust with a student. Um, but like, 
actively like proactively talking about convert like talking about what they will engage with how they're engaging maybe what it's doing to them not to plug the book but like read a book like this even if it's not mine read read mm-hmm. another book about social media and its effects read gene twinge's iGen, or even if you just read it and talked to a student about it like talk with them about having an intentional relationship with the platform that they are using or the platforms they're using and not a passive one. Um, my dad, so to, to answer this, to try to wrap this up, my dad works in uh, data security and he, and he consults um, chief security officers of huge companies, Harley Davidson, other big, and so, so like cybersecurity stuff. So like fighting off hackers, right? And when he is meeting with these guys, his advice is almost never about how to prevent a cyber attack from happening um because it's probably he's like there's almost nothing you can do you can't batten down every hatch you can't plug every hole you're going to end up having a data breach at some point whether unintentionally or from some hacker coming in or whatever so most of his consulting and advice revolves around how to mitigate it when it happens and how how to respond when it happens i would say to a youth minister or even a parent um when you when a student you love is engaging with social media in an unhealthy way whether that's sending and receiving things they shouldn't be whether that's using it for an you know an extremely long period of time every day whatever that is um prepare to have those conversations before that happens so that when it inevitably happens and they use it in a foolish way because they're a teenager you don't have to have a hard conversation for the first time. Try to have some of those hard conversations up front. How to, how to avoid, you know, getting in text threads they shouldn't or social media uh, communities they shouldn't. And, and, and why, you know, not just don't, um, but, but why and, and how it can affect them long term or, or things like that. So that's kind of rambly because there's not a right answer and it's mm-hmm. not really easy. But I think having it just like, you know, I, I'm a parent of a two year old, so obviously we haven't had this conversation yet. But just like a youth minister and or parents want to have proactive conversations about sex, I think having proactive conversations about social media use and using it wisely, um, it's, it's in the similar vein, um, mm. not only because it can be related to sex, but also just because it's such, again, a powerful part of their life can, that can affect them in the long term. The parallels are there for sure. Yeah, that's great. All right. And then final question. How about the, the middle-aged pastor? He's not necessarily working directly with students, but he wants to see his church in this kind of Christ-like engagement, this thoughtful, wise engagement that you're referring to. Obviously, we want them to read your book, and I've read it. It's a fantastic book, Chris, and I'm so glad that you've written it. What would it look like for pastors who want to take this seriously in terms of intentional engagement? What you haven't mentioned already uh, are there any practical ways that they can begin to live into that that might look a little bit differently than what you might say to the youth pastor? Yeah. First, pastors, you have to take this seriously in your own life. Um, mm-hmm. It's really going to be hard for you to lead people in your church to use social media wisely if you're ranting about stuff on Facebook in the middle of a Wednesday afternoon mm-hmm. or something. Um, so, pastors, you can't lead people where you haven't been or where you're not willing to go yourself. And so the last thing you need to be doing is encouraging people to a wiser relationship with social media. If they see you going on some rant, even if it's about something dumb, like your favorite football team or something like that, like, 
like recognize that so that what you do on social media is real. And that's something else I would say here. What happens online is as real as what happens offline. It is no less real. Um, part of the reason I'm grateful I'm not a pastor today is because of that. Um, I've talked with a handful of pastors in the last six to eight months, both as I was finishing terms and writing this next book. And so many pastors I spoke with struggle with when to address con conduct of church members online. Mm. Uh, meaning, meaning when they see a church member acting foolish online, when do they bring it up and when do they just let it go? And mm. I, man, I, again, I don't know that there's a right answer there, but how, however, I will say it's just straight ignoring how church members act online is, is not wise because that, I would argue that who people are online is more likely who they really are than who you see at church mm. um, or at community group or whatever else. And so, because a lot of folks unfortunately don't see online life as real life and they see it as a sort of way to just be their true self and as if nobody else is watching. Um, and so while I do not necessarily think pastors need to be policing activity on social media, my goodness, I can't think of, anything less important for a pastor to be doing. Um, I would also encourage pastors to not turn a blind eye to that stuff because mm. I've seen and heard plenty of stories of how those church members act in foolish online have, have started to act foolishly in, in church as well. And so I would say, don't let that kind of thing fester. Um, but also don't be, don't lose heart um, because social media can be used for good. It can be a, a means of connecting with your people throughout the week or coordinating volunteers for a particular ministry or reaching out to your community for an outreach kind of event that you want to do to serve them. Um, mm -hmm. Don't see it as this outright evil thing that can never be used for good, but kind of like that analogy you said about fire, uh, treat it seriously and as something with great power and not just some sort of like child's play, newfangled technology. Um, it's not going away. It's impacting your people and this is maybe hard for some pastors to hear, and it's sort of an overstatement, but to make a point, social media is likely discipling your people more than you are. Yeah, that's a because, scary reality. <laughs> simply because of time, true. like simply yeah. because of time, not because pastor, you're any less valuable, or certainly your gospel is no less valuable than what they're consuming online, but simply because of time. And so recognize that social media may be shaping the minds and hearts of the people you lead 10x, 5x more than you are in your in your once a week sermon. And maybe if they come to community group or small group that time they have as well. So recognize that it's a, it's a battle and you're always going to be trying to fight for influence, but God is with you. He's not absent and he is um, bigger than social media as, as often as maybe it sometimes it feels like he is. Yeah. Well, Chris, this has been a fantastic conversation and I, I'm, I'm even thinking, man, this is season seven. We should have been talking about this long before we got to the seventh season. But I'm so grateful that we've had this conversation. I'm so grateful for this book. I'm grateful for your wisdom that goes well beyond what your birth, certi birth certificate says. Uh, you are wise beyond your years, and I'm really grateful. And I also love the cover of the book, too. And uh, I, I want to encourage you, uh, as listeners, we'll put it in the show notes as well. But again, Chris's book is Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. You'll really enjoy Chris's book. And uh, Chris, so grateful that we got connected through our friend Will. So grateful for the work that you're doing. And uh, thank you for even how you've helped me just think through social media, uh, even before I read your book. And uh, so I'm so grateful 
uh, for the role that you play on this very significant topic. So thanks for being on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be with you. And um, thank you to the pastors listening. The work you do is invaluable. So keep at it and the Lord is with you. Mm.